Born and raised in Vancouver, Colleen is a third generation elected representative of the city. Elected to council in 2018 with nearly 48,000 votes, Colleen has achieved a whole lot in the past four years. Some examples include the successful motion requiring speakers to city council to identify if they are a Vancouver resident. Being instrumental in creating the role for Mike McDonnell, the independent auditor general for City of Vancouver, serving on the Mayor's Task Force on Housing Affordability, and continuing to raise the awareness of the impact rezoning has on affordability. With a passion for the city and politics, many would be surprised to learn that Colleen has actually had a successful 20-year career in the film industry, where she has produced dozens of film and TV projects, was named one of the most powerful people in BC by the BC film industry, and is a longtime member of the Directors Guild of Canada. Outside of council and film industry, Colleen is a successful entrepreneur of three companies. She's a mother, grandmother of two, and a wife of BC Entertainment Hall of Fame actor Gary Chalk, or as I know him, the voice of Optimus Prime. On today's show, we're gonna ask the obvious question, why do you wanna become mayor of Vancouver and explore some topics impacting the city today? Colleen, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. <laughs> First big question, why do you want to become mayor of Vancouver? Over the last 14 years, I've watched the city and its, its business and financial model turn around in a way that has made it more expensive for our residents to live here. You know, whether it's property taxes or dog licenses or coffee cups, all of these <laughs> things have made it more and more difficult for people to afford living here. And I've got two kids, as you noted, and now grandkids. And I don't want to be the last generation of my family that can afford to live here. Well, that's good. Well, I, I remember when I sat down with your counterpart, one of your colleagues, uh, Adrian Carr. She was actually my very first city council podcast guest probably three years ago now. And I asked her if she had any, uh, into, you know, any goals of running for mayor. There's a lot of talk about why do we not have a... We want to have a female, a woman uh, mayor. So what was it for you being, you know, you're an incumbent city councilor. I'm sure if you ran for city council, you'd have probably no problem getting reelected. Now you're going for uh, a role that's, you know, going to be very hard to win with all the other candidates that are running. So maybe the first question is two part. One is what, what was the point in which you made this decision to switch? And how do you think you're going to be able to elect, get elected with all these other people running? I think the point where, you know, eventually for me was when I left the NPA. Okay. Um, recognizing that after trying really hard for a number of years, uh, that, sh that ship had sailed. Okay. And um, I believe that a reset is necessary, and a reset of council will require six votes, a majority on council. And absent that, um, I really don't have much if any hope for the future because I see a pattern that has emerged that will continue. If, uh, if the incumbent continues and the composition of council continues, um, you know, every day I hear from people that are packing up and leaving town. My kids are talking about Nanaimo, others the Sunshine Coast. Sure. I think um, the one thing that gives me hope is the potential of being able to get a majority of like-minded individuals on council so that we can affect the reset that is 
existentially necessary. Well, that's a good segue into Team for a Livable City. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, you've helped revive what I understand is a, a, a former party or a party that was your dad's and uncle's or they were part of that. Is that have I got that right? So it's not really reviving oh, because okay. the, the society, the entity of the Electors Action Movement no longer exists. Okay. But it was inspired by okay, inspired. Um, and yeah. updated because we're not trying to go back to 1972. Right. It's 2022. Yeah. Uh, but what we did learn from the legacy and, and sadly, going back to the story, my uncle Dave died in May a year ago. Oh, he did. Okay, and uh, thank you. Uh, he was a great guy. Um, my cousin gave me his files, and he had been the secretary of the original organization, so he had all of the agendas and minutes and everything right back to the beginning. Oh, wow. And as I went through it, a, a real picture emerged of a paradigm that was focused on the people in the neighborhoods. As you may know, the original team came together fighting, uh, fighting City Hall, fighting the freeway that would have knocked out the, the northern neighborhoods from Strathcona through Chinatown and Gastown, would have wiped it out completely. Mm-hmm. And the people of the city rose up and fought C- City Hall successfully. Mm-hmm. And to me, we're kind of in a situation similar to that today in that... Uh, the people of the city have, the pendulum has swung back to where the people really don't have any, any influence over the direction of the city in the way that they didn't at that time. Mm-hmm. The second part was um, policy. One of the first things that the original team did was to have a policy convention. Um, the late, great Peter Oberlander was the Uber policy chair who started the School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. Um, and it was really the focus on policy that galvanized the people together because, of course, as, as I like to joke, policy is the best honesty. <laughs> so it was the combination of, of activating the people and galvanizing them around shared policies and views of where the city needed to go that gave rise to team. And, and ultimately, when they got a majority on council in 1972, led by Art Phillips, they were able to affect the turnaround then. Um, that gave us the livable city that we enjoyed for several decades. Mm-hmm. And at a time when the economy was quite turbulent as well, if I recall 1972 by my, by my history book. So let's, let's talk a bit more about Team for a Livable Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got a slate of candidates to support you? Because you've made reference to this having to have six people on council, that you can't do this alone. Absolutely. So um, sort of sequence of events after... Um, you know, considering the various various choices, there was you know prol- proliferation of new parties last time. We did, and we wanted we decided that we wanted to focus on the team paradigm of and the livable city principles driving that um, sequence of events. We had a policy conference at the end of October and uh, developed policy directions in twelve different areas. Uh, we had an AGM and elected a board at the end of November. And since then, have been organizing um, using the the neighborhood paradigm that I developed with my 50 neighborhoods project that I started back uh, in January of 2020. So it's continued to evolve and grow, and at the same time, trying to identify um, candidates that are on the same page, that have a depth of knowledge about the city, that have relevant backgrounds. Uh, to the running of a city because mm-hmm. civic governance is at the core of what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, generally looking for um, geographic distribution across the city, 
gender balance, racial diversity, uh, but really the, the core connection to the city of Vancouver, not only historically, but looking out into the future. Um, you mentioned briefly a moment ago about your 50 neighborhood project. Mm-hmm. Can you tell the listeners what that is? Is this related to that article I read in the, I think it was the Vancouver Sun a couple of years ago, where you were planning to knock on doors of every neighborhood in, in, the, in the city? So um, going back, I have been trying to, to reboot the citywide planning process really since 2005. Okay. For those that aren't familiar, through the 90s, the city undertook a city plan process, which was a comprehensive citywide plan, planning process that engaged with people at the neighborhood level. And we have a whole, I like to say, a tapestry of community plans that have been developed over many decades, you know, in, involving countless staff hours and thousands of hours of volunteer efforts in the neighborhoods. So the idea that I was promoting when I got elected, I ran on let's reboot the citywide planning process and really knit together this tapestry of neighborhood plans and pull it together comprehensively um, like we should have done some time ago, frankly. But that's not what happened. Uh, Once the motion was passed uh, and it was handed to staff, it was rebranded as the Vancouver Plan and all of a sudden became a top-down, values, priorities-driven process instead of a grassroots, bottom-up community planning process. Mm. And because I was concerned about that um, and I wasn't getting the answers I was uh, looking for from staff, some of that staff has changed, I'll I'll acknowledge, I thought, well, maybe the best thing to do is try and shine a light on what we should be doing, which is engaging the people in the neighborhoods. Right. And years ago, I'd done a project with some UBC geography students where we had looked at the city through the lens of what we call complete communities, which are usually um, 10-minute walkable catchments would would be the norm where you have neighborhoods that have a common, has a common character. It has maybe a high street. Um, schools, other community amenities associated with it, but people identify with their neighborhoods. And so um, I started doing these meetings in in person based off of that 50 neighborhoods paradigm that we developed at UBC. And then um, I talked to people about th- their neighborhoods. And initially we did them in person. We'd get a map up and we do what's called a charrette. But the core question was, if we need to add you know, 500 to 1,000 new people into your neighborhood over the next decade, where are they going to live? Right. You know, what's the housing typology? What are the impacts on mobility, getting around? Right. Where, what, what about commercial activity, economic activity? Where are people, are they going to be working there? Or, um, and what about community amenities? Mm-hmm. Um, libraries, parks, community centers, schools, so green space. So is the idea here to, instead of like, paint the entire city with the same brush to go, okay, well, you've got Carisdale, it's very different than Commercial Drive, which is very different than the West End. And so we need to kind of think more in terms of what those neighborhoods and communities need. Absolutely. Community-based planning is a process wherein you go in at a granular level. Here's our neighborhood and figure out how are we going to affect change um, in tandem with the people that live there. Yeah, we got it. I mean, we're planning for the future, but people are living there now, and yeah. people have been living there, you know, over 136 years since the city was incorporated yeah. in many cases. 
And so it's, it's important to be um, influencing our future plans with that kind of granular understanding of the neighborhoods as they exist today and involving the people that live here in yeah. that process. And that's really the legacy of community planning that uh, was the hallmark of the city up until 2008 anyway. So I started out in person and going into the neighborhoods one one a week. The idea was 50 neighborhoods over 52 weeks. Right, that's what uh, that's one the One a week, we'll get them out yes, there. Yeah. But How'd of you course, do? did you get there? I got um, in the end, yeah, but not over the, not over, because what Took happened, at, so we started in January of 2020, what happened in March? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No one's gonna wanna answer any doors in. <laughs> no, it wasn't, and we were meeting in neighborhoods. We built a database of all different organizations, everything from childcare to seniors, from policing to BIAs, community groups, etc. And so we would invite representatives of all those groups in the general public to the community center or you know the church hall or whatever it is to come in and talk about how they would like to see uh, their neighborhoods develop with the expectation that there was going to be change and growth because change is the only constant. So after the pandemic hit, we had to discontinue those. And so um, starting after the summer, I started switching to Zoom meetings instead, like everybody yeah. else. But we still brought in um, neighborhood groups through Zoom to talk about, you know, how's it going? This is the history of your neighborhood. And where, where would you like to see it going? The original city plan process that was done in the 90s, pre-internet, involved 100,000 Vancouverites in that planning process. It, <laughs> if we are really responsible to our residents and to our electorate, we should be listening to them very carefully about the development of the neighborhoods that they know best. Well said, and actually that goes back to the one of the things that I saw you bring to council is the requirement for people who are speaking at City Hall to identify whether they are not whether or not they are a Vancouver resident. So thank you for that. As a Vancouver resident, thank you for doing that. <laughs> it just means that uh, it's important for us to know that we're re we're hearing from our constituents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my other questions that's uh, uh, I, I think a lot of people think about when they look at um, Vancouver versus say a city like Edmonton or Toronto is we have Vancouver proper, and it's a distinctly different city from Burnaby, from Richmond, from North Van, from West Vancouver. Yet we have policies here that they don't have, say, in Burnaby and vice versa. And it kind of affects a lot of businesses. My question is, would you ever like to see Vancouver amalgamate into a much larger municipality with our surrounding um, uh, towns like Burnaby and Richmond, New West? Um. Vancouver operates under the Vancouver Charter, uniquely in this province. The rest of the municipalities operate under the Municipal or Local Government Act. Um, so um, on that basis, I, I am not a supporter of amalgamation. Mm -hmm. um, I do have issues with Metrovan as, as an organization, and I think that there should be a, a more effective form of regional representation of the people. Okay. Um, the current format, I think, again, is disenfranchising the electorate. They're only represented through the, appointee, the, the elected appointees from different municipalities. Um, but I, I, I don't believe that amalgamation in the way that you've described it is the solution. Uh, I'm going to talk about now uh, the leadership at City Hall at the staffing level. In 2021, Mayor and City Council combined were paid just over a million dollars in compensation. Okay? 
By contrast, if you take the top 10 city staff, they were paid nearly three times that number, okay? These are staff that have also in addition to $300,000, dollars to $300,000 uh, salaries, these golden pensions that are worth millions of dollars in, in real dollar terms. Um, elected officials like yourself actually don't get any pension. A lot of people don't realize that. It seems as though city staff appear to have overreaching uh, rule, uh, often refusing to provide counselors with data and delay acting on issues that they don't, they don't see as being important. And there seems to be very little accountability to the public with respect to the senior level of staffing at City Hall. There's my comment. My question to you is, what's your view? So the, the corporatist model that we have um, at City Hall really in its current form began back in, in 2008 when uh, Vision Vancouver re received a majority on council. A little bit of a history lesson here. Um, one of the first things that Gregor Robertson did was fire Judy Rogers, who was the longtime city manager, and brought in Penny Ballum, a former deputy minister of health, as, uh, as city manager. And uh, as, as I've been told uh, by first-handers that were there, she came in with a binder this thick of her marching orders. And for those that remember, they undertook a core services review, which effectively restructured the civil service. It was like a business turnaround for those in the business community. So what happened was heads of departments jumped or were pushed, and succession planning was interrupted. And uh, the net result at the end of the decade was a complete loss of institutional memory, and it was replaced with an entirely new organization. And that organization has grown um, in leaps and bounds in terms of headcount, as you know, just as the budget has increased substantially. Yeah. And when I was first elected, one of the first things I did was try and bring in a baseline review back to 2008 in order to be able to, you know, to see what just happened over the decade. How do we double the budget? Where did the money go? You know, 65% of, of the city's budget is attributable to HR, to salaries. Mm -hmm. So I've spent a lot of time analyzing what just happened. And there was a, a significant structural change in the civil service to a more corporate model. Mm -hmm. um, and this has been um, illustrated, for example, there used to be a, a civic management team, the city manager, that, that morphed into the corporate management team, or, or CMT, and is now described as the CLT, or Corporate Leadership Team. Okay. And that semantic difference is very telling because the, the, the senior staff are no longer viewed as managing the city, but rather leading, leading it. Leading the city, and, but not being elected. But the elected officials, so the, so the council are viewed as a board of directors who are basically there to ratify the recommendations of management and staff. Now, of course, the no notion is that the elected representatives, like in a business, have shareholders being the electorate. Yes. But uh, my observation is in this model that we have uh, advanced over the last now 14 years uh, has, has degraded the impact that the electorate can have on City Hall. Mm -hmm. So Colleen, I've noticed that you mentioned twice now 14 years ago. What happened 14 years ago that was a pivoting point? Because you mentioned that twice now. So it was 2008. 
right? 2008, what happened? Well, the business community will remember there was this crash that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the crash happened and it coincided that fall with um, the election of Gregor Robertson and Vision with the majority on council. Right. And that majority allowed them effectively to to institute a turnaround that reflected, I believe, um, policies that had been developed earlier when Larry Campbell was mayor, actually in the 2002 to 2005 period. Um, For those that remember, this was the short time when COPE formed a majority on council um, and when Vision split away from COPE. And I think it was at that time that uh, people that were involved on council and in in the background, in the mayor's office, uh, determined that there wasn't enough money in the city's existing business paradigm. uh, And they needed to find new ways, new revenue streams in order to fund uh, their vision. And so when they got in in 2008, uh, that was what they set about doing. Now you made, and I forgot the names, but you made mention of when Gregor Robertson came into, uh, as mayor, he fired the city manager. Yes. Who was it again? Judy Rogers. And he hired... Penny Ballum. Penny Ballum. And it sounds to me from what you've just described that you feel like that was a big... That's what caused this massive shift in bloating of the payroll and and the shift in culture at the city as people started leaving. So um, the first thing was there. It started with Green as City. Am I even on the right? You are, but I want to. I want to okay. explain it structurally so people oh, okay. understand the changes went right down to the chart of accounts for the business folks on the call. Okay. And I had been trying up, you know, after two thousand eight to be able to get line item detail and budgets like we used to be able to get, so we could have a better understanding of what changes were being implemented as we started to see. If you look at the numbers, you'll see the numbers go along like this in a fairly regular incremental and then all of a sudden they go up and significantly across the board in both the operating and capital budget. Hmm. But the most notable structural change that happened was on the capital side of the budget. So just quick tell for those that are not familiar with the way that the city budget works, there's an operating budget that is is operating. It's it's funded out of property taxes, user fees, pay as you go, that's you know yeah. that's your dog license, yeah. your parking permit, all those things. On the other side is capital, and capital is when we want to build something. Yeah. You know, it's it's infrastructure. Historically, yeah. uh, we used to have standalone plebiscites. The last time I think was in 1986 when the city had a plebiscite about replacing the Canby Street Bridge back when Mike Harcourt was mayor. So the the after that, what they start started doing was was putting the plebiscite on the back of the ballot. And yeah. basically what that enabled um, the electorate to do was say, yes, we approve that the city can go out and borrow X number of millions of dollars. Yeah. And uh, again, the terms were two-year terms up until 1993. Then they went up to three-year terms. And then in 2014, up to four-year terms. But each time that you go back to the electorate and say, okay, we want to borrow $100 million, $500 million, give us permission. Mm -hmm. And then we go out and we borrow that through debenture borrowing. Yeah. And the interest, of course, is then amortized. um, And that actually goes back to the operating budget as well. Mm -hmm. But what happened in 2009 was they introduced developer contributions as a regular revenue stream in the capital side of the budget. 
Prior to that, in the capital side, capital side. Okay. Okay. So for funding big projects, so which is historically it had been part of the operating budget. Well, yes. No. If you wanted to build again, it's it's a question of what we covered under capital. We want to build a bridge, but you know now we want to build bike lanes. Bike lanes would be a capital project, for example. Yeah. So where are we going to get the money from? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these other things that we want to do um, to for our vision, where where are we going to get the money from? Right. So uh, what they they did was they s- structurally regularized developer contributions as a revenue stream in capital. Now. There had been CACs, community amenity contributions, that um, had been used really going back, certainly through the 90s. And these were developed. So think about things like the Expo Lands and Concord Pacific. So the director of planning negotiates a big CAC, community amenity contribution, with the developer to build a community center, Mm -hmm. to put in a park. um, to, To pay for additional infrastructure above and beyond what would normally be expected. But it was always location specific. And if you talk to Larry Beasley, who uh, was our former director of planning until 2007, he'll tell you that it was never intended that CACs be regularized. But um, what they did from a business model standpoint was they looked at, I'll use the Canby Corridor plan as an example. They said, we're going we're gonna to make this plan that will allow um, all this densification along Camby and, and surrounding areas. Um, but every time there is a rezoning, we're going to take a CAC. We're going to take a piece of the action. So they built a business model with revenue projections based on that. So if we divide up the city, we can expect along this corridor that we're going to generate X number of hundreds of millions of dollars of CACs. And the CACs are not the only form of developer contributions. There's DCLs, etc. But the logic was, we're going to get the developers to pay for growth, which on the surface sounds great. But what happens when you rezone a piece of property? BC assessment comes in and goes, oh, rezoning, we're going to now reassess it to highest and best use which means the most money we could extract out of that particular property. Okay. So um, the I think perhaps unintended consequence of building a business model that's basically selling zoning to generate revenue to fund growth is that it is inflating land values in excessive pace of change. To finish off on our theme of City Hall, Kennedy Stewart spent nearly $800,000 last year on discretionary expenses. Coastal Front did some FOI research into that $800,000 and nearly all of that $800,000 was used to pay for political staff. I believe over 600, around 600000 was on political staff. By contrast, you as part of the city council, the 10 city councillors combined spent less than $100,000 in discretionary expenses. So. First question, Colleen, do you believe local taxpayers should be fronting the bill for an incumbent mayor's political campaign? Well, clearly not. Look, this started, again, it goes back to Gregor Robertson. He ballooned the size. It it did. I mean, this is just one example of the empire building that happened at City Hall under the Vision regime. 
and all you have to do is look at the headcount that occurred and break it down by department to see who are the beneficiaries of the largesse. And yes, the mayor's office is a big part of that. He's got two chiefs of staff, um, you know, policy folks, communication folks, um, and in contrast, uh, council councilors get a thirty thousand dollar allocation. I used mine on a university student who's had to work retail on the side to to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not enough money. Even we don't even get a full time assistant at City Hall. The two council it's two counselors per, per assistant. assistant. Yeah, that's right. So it's disproportionate without question, but it's part of the legacy that goes back to Gregor Robertson and Vision. We're gonna pivot now to talk about housing and development. My question to you is how are you going to approach uh, the issue on housing in this city differently than the current or previous mayors have? I've been trying to get housing data since I was elected. When I first, uh, we were elected in October, sworn into November, we had to pass the budget and capital plan in December. And the budget that we got is a budget presentation document full of narrative and infographics. And for the business folks that are on the call, you know, show me the real budget, give mm-hmm. me line item detail. I want yeah. to have access so I can do proper analysis. Um, and I've continued to push for that. But one of the first things I did notice was the big number in the capital budget and the revenue side attributable to developer contributions. So I went... Which you've highlighted earlier. I was going, holy cow. Well, how do you know, projecting out into the future, how much money you're going to be generating? So I spoke to the then director of planning, and he told me there was a pipeline of development behind the numbers. And I said, whoa, show me the pipeline. And I was told I couldn't see it. For what reason? Um, the city manager wasn't making that possible the, the, at the time. So I met with the CFO and I asked um, about what was behind the revenue projections and um, you know, I, was there a pipeline and, and I got no response. And when I asked, well, well, what is behind those revenue projections? The answer that I got was zoning. And that's what prompted me to start to go down the path of trying to understand what was going on in, in the city's financial model because it is tied to our housing situation. So unpacking it for you, the model of selling zoning to generate revenue to fund council priorities has inflated land values or contributed to the exponential land inflation. And if we want to have affordability, we have to slow down the rate of inflation because it's been galloping for well over a decade now. Mm -hmm. And for those that are not familiar with the term, 10% per annum is called galloping inflation. And from an urban land economics perspective, that is is what we've been experiencing. And we've been told it's because there's so much demand, but in fact, the the inflation and the production of a large amount of of product, because we are talking about housing product here, uh, for offshore sales has driven much of this. Look, I'm a free market capitalist type of person. So to be the devil's advocate, isn't isn't the issue of housing, uh, at least locally, I mean, anywhere, a simple equation of uh, 
that demand is outpacing supply? No, it's not. Why not? I mean, how, not. how is that not possible? Because again, if from an urban land economics perspective, you have to unpack the, the levers of production. It all starts with the land. And when you inflate the land values exponentially, it all starts there and the, and the affordability problem has started there. We hit the high part of the gold rush, as it were, in 2016. There was more product produced than ever before. And that corresponded roughly with the introduction of empty homes tax and, and the so-called school tax. Because so you don't think there's an issue of supply availability of livable homes for uh, Vancouverites? First of all, we don't know. We, we have asked, if you go and look for the, at the data that I've been asking for, yeah. Dr. David Leif, Professor Emeritus at UBC Geography, had asked for secondary rental market data. Mm -hmm. All we capture is purpose-built rental. So when you hear the numbers about what our, our uh, vacancy rate is, this is a good point. it's only on purpose-built rental. Yeah. We're not capturing all of those single-family dwellings, um, basement suites, yes. rooming houses. And I've said that the city should be able to provide that data because sure, there's some illegal suites, but there's a lot that people are paying their their annual permit. Yeah. Um, so the city should be able to provide us with the data on secondary rental market. The city should also be able to provide us with information on short-term re rentals, whether it was the Airbnb situation or what we've experienced with international students. This is significant. Um, Andy Yan, who uh, runs the city program at SFU, is someone that has, has spoken about this as well as others, is that we really don't have a handle on uh, that whole short-term rental market. The final point is is that we have a significant pipeline. What I, I um, have been able to find out, and again, this has been mostly from citizens that have been spending the time to do the, the grunt work, frankly, to figure out how much is in the pipeline. When we look at you know everything that's coming down, uh, we've got Oak Ridge, we're talking about Jericho, Sinaqua, Little Mountain, Northeast Falls Creek, not to mention the Canby Corridor, Dog, uh, Dogwood Lodge and, and Marple. There is something in the order of 20 years worth of, of growth anticipated in terms of, of homes uh, in the pipeline now. So the point that I'm trying to make is that we should really have a better handle on what our existing housing situation is before we make pronouncements about what we need. Okay, Colleen, so you're giving me an interesting perspective on this that I haven't really understood before. So I'm going to take some time to, to reflect on that. But let me go back to one of my um, comments that I've, I've gotten back from some pretty prominent real estate developers here in the city. Um, we've talked to quite a few of them. Uh, I know some of them personally. And many of them have basically said they just simply won't build in Vancouver anymore. Many of them have had land here and they've let those projects build and they haven't replaced them. Uh, they love building in Burnaby. They love building in West Vancouver because they can get projects done faster. One of them actually has uh, gone as far as going out to Edmonton because they can, in his words, I can take a project that would take me seven to nine years to build in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. It will take me two to three years to build in Edmonton with the same amount of capital. Do you agree with David Eby's proposal that municipal government should no longer be in charge of the permitting process due to the massive delays and red tape that are caused here in Vancouver? Absolutely not. Okay. That is, um, again, we do live in a democracy and, and we are 
we have a, a, a responsibility to our electorate. And I just, I, I find that an incredible statement. But I still would like to unpack the costs. Some of what you said, uh, let, let's go back a step if I can. Yeah, yeah, because we're at two points there. So to be clear, you don't agree with Abby's statement. No, I don't. You, I you think it's irresponsible. in the hands of the city. This is not for the province to get involved Absolutely with. not. Okay. If I'm a developer, I have a pro forma. I'm trying to figure out, ultimately, my objective is to make money. Builders got to build. That's our business. I yes. understand that. It starts at the land. And if the land is, is expensive and has, the value of the land has grown exponentially, that is going to be the principal lever on affordability. So then what are the other levers that influence housing production? Well, time is one of them. And they're absolutely right, is mm -hmm. that the time that it takes to get permits through is outrageous. And that's the feedback they give, because they, they understand that the cost of a square foot of land in Vancouver is going to be more than Coquitlam, okay, or, or Chilliwack. But that's, that's their main point, is that they have so much uncertainty around because these projects take so long now. So if you talk to the, you know, the guys that used to work at the hall before the regime change, they used to pride themselves in being able to, to get permits approved and move through the process quickly. But what we've seen, again, is a doubling of the size. There was 243 new FTEs in the planning department that were so added. So for the listener, was an FTE? Full-time employee. Okay, yeah, right. So the... Um, at, this, at the time, the argument was we need to add all of these people to, to make a more efficient system, when in fact the outcome has been, as this, this one old timer said to me, you know, when, when the regime change came in, now there's, a, there's half a dozen people sitting around a, whole, a table holding hands singing, singing Kumbaya was the, was the joke, and no decisions get made and things get dragged out and dragged out and dragged out. Um, so there is no question that efficiency in terms of time is one of the levers because time is money. If it takes you all that time, the bank is the bank's the one that benefits. It's going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. So without doubt, a doubt, um, there has to be efficiencies achieved in the timing. But I would say that that has to happen within the existing zoning. Uh, if we want to get inflation under control, but the good news is there's boatloads of existing zone capacity that we can grow into. Let's just make it more efficient in, in our approvals process. We can't do a lot about labor and materials because the market is determining it. The busier it is in town, the harder it is to get crew, the prices go up, and the supply chain side of things influences that as well. But there are two other things besides time that the city can do. One is the cost of permits. Now, the cost of permits has just exploded similarly because, again, I'll argue there's more mouths to feed. Um, a simple inquiry permit used to be 400 bucks. Overnight, it went up to $2,900. Wow. Same thing. Why? Because we, the city needs the money. And there is, a, you know, a, a constellation of permits now. I mean, every step of the way, and it's yeah. all designed to extract as much revenue. Again, what is what is our motivation? Our motivation is to generate as much revenue as possible to fund council priorities. 
Then the final lever in this is the building code itself. Okay. Vancouver has its own building code separate from the rest of the province, similar to what, you know, we have a Vancouver charter, charter. separate yeah. from the Municipal Act. And uh, under the Vancouver building code, it is Byzantine in its complexity. Again, uh, this is something that we've seen particularly over the last 14 years. And I know there's discussion about trying to, to simplify the processes, but it's, uh, this, this is again one of the ironies of, of the whole situation. We've made it more complex. complex. And um, so I do believe that yes, we can do something about the time, we can do something about the permits, we can do something about the building code if there's the political will to do it. Okay. But the status quo does not want to be disrupted. Right, okay, good answer. Uh, the, the Broadway plan, those who support it say it will bring 42,000 more jobs and 50,000 50, more residents and that it's a commitment to the strongest renter protections in North America. What are your concerns regarding this plan? It starts with the land. I mean, if the city has already, think of, think of it like a big pro forma, not just for a building. Think about it, a pro forma for the forest, not just the trees. And it, it has determined how much money it thinks it can extract from this development. That's what this is all about. Okay. And so it's, it's then backing into what numbers do we have to, to, to target in terms of population growth and job growth. It's a, a bit of a cart before the horse exercise in, in my view. We should be thinking about population growth through the lens of what jobs and opportunities are going to attract people to come here in the future. You know, this city was a, was a resource town up until 1986, really an expo, which was a pivot year. We were, you know, it, the, this was a forest fisheries mining town. And then it, it um, morphed into a real estate town. And um, we have not really seen economic diversification that is contemplating our future economy. Now, people will point to the tech industry or they'll point to the film industry. Um, but by and large, we're operating as a back office or a back lot for American multinationals. Um, and they come here because it has historically been cheaper with a Canadian 80 cent dollar and tax credits. But we are not really um, diversifying our economy through the, the lens of innovation and entrepreneurship, which I believe that is where we should be going. Okay. So I don't see the justification and the thought process that would, would um, would suggest that these numbers, these targets that they've set are, are achievable or desirable without a more thoughtful view to where we're going um, for our economy. Um, it just, it, uh, what I'm seeing, and I'm hearing from Invest Vancouver, which is the regional economic prosperity office, is that in fact businesses that are growing here, we've had a successful, uh, bio, some successful biotech startups, for example, that are really catching have. on. Yeah. And they're starting to, like all innovation does, it starts to build a hub around it. Yeah. But as they're looking at their B rounds, C rounds, and, and growth, they're, they're going, we can't stay here. It doesn't make sense for us economically to stay in Vancouver. And ironically, we're going to go down to Silicon Valley. 
So I question the logic behind this. I think it's being driven by as a real estate play instead of a more thoughtful play about what's in the best interests of the city as we grow to the future and, and consider our future economy. Switching gears to doing business in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as you know, a lot of our listeners are, are people who own businesses. They Whether they live in Vancouver or not, they own their business, their employees, or their, um, their business is in Vancouver. How can entrepreneurs and business owners relate to you and ha have confidence that you know what you're talking about? Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur, <laughs> for starters. I've been, um, I've been, I started my first company, I guess, in the, uh, well, 1990, coming out of uh, working in the movie business. I, I couldn't wait for the phone to ring for another movie to come up, so I started going down to Los Angeles and bringing business up here, and, and uh, through the 90s, produced dozens of movies and television shows for the uh, studios and networks. So um, I've built and run businesses. I segued in, uh, after 2005 into what was called new media then and then digital media now and then civic technology was my last startup so i've i've built i venture funded companies and i've run them i've managed millions of dollars in complex systems okay. so i understand business so um, the cost of doing business in vancouver has has gone through the roof and you know what do we need we need we need a place to work we need physical space in, in the film industry, it used to be we need locations to shoot. We need places to park the trucks and power to get to them. We need police to, to hold things. These are all things that the city can do something about. Right. The city's job is not to be out doing economic development. You know, that's what the provincial government's job or even the federal government's job is, is to do. They do that mm -hmm. through tax credits. They do it through various other... Or let other, the business sector do it. Or, well, as a producer, I go to L.A. I go Right now, I would be in yeah. Cannes trying to drum yeah. up business to bring back here, yeah. uh, using the film industry again as, as a parallel. Um, but if, if it's too expensive to, to, to shoot here or to do business here, I'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And if I'm down in Los Angeles, for example, and I'm trying to determine where I'm going to go to shoot, I'm going to run the numbers for Vancouver, Toronto, Atlanta, Albuquerque, you name it. Right. And I'm going to make the decision based on where I can get the best deal. Yeah, yeah. And okay. if it's not Vancouver, we're pricing ourselves out of the market. What about the tech sector? You know, Vancouver has some hugely successful tech startups. So my question is simply, with respect to the tech sector, because the world is changing, Vancouver is not the industrial uh, city that it was 100 years ago. Yeah. Maybe some of the outlying communities are. How would you um, support this tech sector yourself? Like, what would you do to? It's all about. It's about space. Again, it's not. It's not the city's job to. We don't do tax credits. We could give you some free rent. It's it's about physical. It's about where you, where your offices are, where your facilities are, and getting you know if, if it's an incubator hub, that's really what the role of the city is. So really, the things that the city can be doing are the nuts and bolts on the ground stuff. And if if it's about space, then give me a place to work. Okay. To finish, we're going to go into our uh, what we we're describing as our real citizens concern round of questions. We're going to go through these quick. Mm -hmm. They're largely yes or no questions. If you want to pause to to uh, to validate or 
to expand on one of your answers or a couple of your answers, please do, please do so. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ready for this? Sure. Okay. Climate change, homelessness, poverty, and other global social issues seem to consume a lot of council time and energy. By contrast, road maintenance, wastewater treatment, aging community centers are generally things that the city should be focused on. Will you commit to refocusing on issues that are truly civic, yes or no? 100%. Okay. Without question, everything that I described to you earlier in the business model, the way it has been developed, especially on the capital side of the budget, infrastructure has been deprioritized because we now have the four areas of council priorities, climate change, social issues, economic development, and so-called affordable housing. So we've layered on all of this stuff on top of what we should be doing and deprioritized what we ought to be doing in the first place. Do we have a real or perceived public safety issue here in Vancouver? We have a real public safety issue here in Vancouver. There's no question about it. Next question, do you feel the VPD is properly funded? I think that the VPD should be funded in such a way that allows them to grow their headcount in alignment with the growth of our population. Okay. So it needs to continue to to grow, but it needs to grow incrementally to reflect the needs of the people in our city. How would you grade the Vancouver Police Department's efforts on inclusiveness, bearing in mind race, gender, culture? I think they're doing an excellent job in the diversity file. Uh, Residential property tax, would you increase it, decrease it, or leave it where it is? It should be in line with the cost of living index. So I'm certainly not going to increase it. Decreasing it is problematic. And and again, in order to affect the reset that I'm talking about there, we're going to have to make some hard decisions. Uh, So I wouldn't expect it to be going down. But the objective should always be, you know, as I come back to the word balance, um, incremental cost of living index is a, the appropriate appropriate level for property tax increase. Okay. Empty homes tax. Do you support the 5% increase which the mayor has introduced? I do. Um, the, you got to remember that the empty homes tax was there as an incentive or disincentive, depending on how you look at it, um, for leaving um, homes empty because supposedly we need places for people to live. Um, and we have sold, you know, tens of thousands of units offshore. And um, I think it's appropriate to try and bring that product back into the market from a rental perspective. Okay. So um, it's not intended to hurt the people that live here now. It's intended to get the people that are sitting uh, on those safe deposit box in the sky. How will you save taxpayers money? Well, it goes back to first principles and what we've been discussing here. We need to focus on what civic governance is responsible for the, in the first place. And I like to say that's based on the dirt. You know, it's the 115 square kilometers of dirt between Boundary Road and the University Endowment Lands. So what are we responsible for? We're responsible for those roads. Seen, seen those potholes out there lately? The sidewalks. <laughs> we're, we're responsible for, for water and sewage, albeit through the the metro van regional um, bodies. 
but we're responsible for parks, we're responsible for schools, we're responsible for police and fire. But there's a bunch of other stuff that has been loaded on that is clearly outside the scope of civic governance. And we are going to have to, to wean ourselves and frankly, put up our dukes with the senior levels of government and say, you guys have got to, you, you've got to step up. It's unfair to put that um, on our 115 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. Vancouver's 25 cent cup fiasco. Would you keep it or scrap it? Scrap it. Outdoor patio license. Is it too costly or is it fair? I think it needs a, again, it needs a, a rethink. We brought about the, the patios during the pandemic because we needed to be outside and, and some, some are more successful than others. Some are just, you know, blocking traffic. So um, on balance, I think that it needs a more nuanced look that we should be talking to people in the neighborhoods to pinpoint where the successful ones are and where they're not. Right. And then make judgments based on that analysis. Good point. And this is not so much a yes or no question. Why did you propose a plebiscite regarding the Vancouver 2030 Olympic bid? Well, there's a precedent, of course, uh, of when we had the 2010 Olympics, we had a plebiscite in 2003, which won an overwhelming support, and it had the, the public legitimacy to go ahead. I believe that this is a big enough question. It's a you know multiple billions of dollar question that it should be on the ballot. Uh, my personal concern is that the books, uh, the minutes and the, and the books remain embargoed in the archives until 2025. And I don't know about you, but if I'm making big business decisions, I'd kind of like to see the books. To finish off on this series of questions, because politics is always such a, sometimes such a negative, nasty world, I'm going to ask you to say something positive about each of the candidates you're running for running against, excuse me, John Kupar. Well, John um, did a great job preserving the Bloedel Conservatory as a legacy to his father. And uh, I commend him for that. Mark Marison. Mark has been involved in innumerable uh, political campaigns. Uh, he's very knowledgeable in uh, the political campaign world. Ken Sim. Ken was one of the co-founders of a, a franchise business that serves seniors in their homes. And finally, Kennedy Stewart. He used to play bass in a band. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, Colleen, we're wrapping this up. This is your chance to kind of give your pitch to the listeners, your party, yourself, how they can get involved, what you're looking for, support, that type of thing. I'll leave it to you. Well, you know, I don't want to be the last generation of my family that can afford to live in Vancouver. On a personal level, um, you know, my kids are talking about moving to Nanaimo. Every day, you know, it seems as I triage my emails when I get up in the morning before I go to bed at night, I'm hearing from more and more people that are, have given up hope for the city. I don't want to give up hope for the city. I want to bring hope to the city. So I have spent the, the last four years of my life analyzing um, what's really going on at City Hall with an eye to what needs to be done to bring it into balance. So when I think about um, what I want to see, it's a livable city. And livability comes down to complete neighborhoods that are really focused on residents and the people where they live. 
It's, uh, it's about accessibility and mobility in order for it to be effective. Mm -hmm. We need to have a vibrant economy, but unless we do that, um, we're going to continue to widen the divide between global wealth and the local economy. Uh, we need to, to have green space and community amenities that make this place livable so people enjoy it. We, we point to the mountains and the ocean all of the time, but if we can't enjoy it um, where we live, it, it's not livable. And the, the fifth measure of a livable city is affordability. If we can't afford to live here in the first place, what's the point? Right. So I'm going to do everything within my power, backed by my background, knowledge, and experience to, to try and effect a reset that will um, make it possible for us to continue living in Vancouver. And if people would like to get involved with you, Colleen, they hear this podcast and go, I like this lady. I want her to be their mayor. What, would, what, should, they, what should they do? <laughs> they should go to voteteam.ca. That's uh, the easiest thing to do and sign up. You can go there and, and uh, right now you can see the, the 12 policy directions that have been developed. And soon you'll be able to see um, our rock star candidates that uh, we're putting together. Um, and we, we need all the help we can get. We are organizing at the neighborhood level. Um, I mentioned the 50 neighborhoods uh, uh, motif. Uh, so we are looking for team leaders uh, in every neighborhood to help organize the ground game. Ultimately, um, I believe that we do need to have uh, better representation at the neighborhood level in the city. Uh, right now, we elect representatives, uh, but once they're there, then we stop hearing from the people um, or stop paying attention to them. We, and I, th I think that we should be looking at other forms of civic governance that would... Uh, support our residents more meaningfully great this has so been so nice having you on again colleen we have colleen hardwick councillor colleen hardwick running as a mayoral candidate for the city of vancouver's election yeah. team for a livable city that's right thanks for being on coastal front today colleen it was a pleasure thanks a lot appreciate it thanks.